Hey, it's Nick, back once again, and this is the second pod on the Tyne Bokunya, or the Calorita Cooley. And we're going to jump right into Koo's boyhood deeds. If you haven't listened to the first episode, then first I mean, what? Do you not like order? Are you so laid back and cool that you don't follow the rules? Well, if that's you, no sweat, mate. Just fill your boots. But I just want to let you know this isn't the lazy attempt by me to try and get extra listens. I honestly do think that the info from the previous pod acts as uh, like a good setup for those that follow. Given kind of context and all that kind of jazz. But, say Luffy, and because I'm mildly dead on, I'll do a crap recap anyway. But this is episode 19, Boyhood Deeds Indeed. To learn of the past, the answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. So as we heard in the last pod, Maven and Lil were two regularly rich bastards from Connacht who, who had a tiff over money, which led to them taking a rather large army in the Ulster to raid it senseless. Easy pickings. Well, so they thought, as all the warriors of the glorious northern province were indisposed. However... There was an obnoxious teenage fly in their ointment, the boy, Cahoolan. He was delaying their every attempt to snatch that bull, and this came as a, as a bit of a sickener to m as they thought they'd win the war and be back home by Christmas. It seems that Coo's reputation, while massive in Ulster, well, for the rest of the provinces, they were just a little less starstruck. A little, however, he wanted to know more, and he ordered each man in the army to grab a glass to strap in and to prepare for some ulcer exiles to get cracking on the tails of this boy wonder, the little kid that had caused them such infuriating trouble. <laughs> now, as a kid, I used to watch wrestling, not like fanatically like some of my mates, but I did enjoy it. Now, there's grapplers like Big Daddy or Giant Haystacks in the kind of low-budget British version, or from American TV, you know, the Razzmatazz, you had the Ultimate Warrior, Legion of Doom, and my favourite, the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, who I saw defeat Earthquake in the King's Hall when I was in peace, and by the way, I'm very, very proud of that day. Now, sadly, he would die in 2002 of a heart attack, aged only 40, with the coroner's report saying that it was possibly due to a cocktail of human growth hormone and anabolic steroids but but here's the thing as a 10 year old watching on i mean he was a hero he was a real cool guy like you know a winner and for some time you know i also wanted to be a wrestler i'll admit it unfortunately i never made it and my dreams were kind of cut short out the back of stew hawthorne's house when a guy called james boyd like completely suplexed me on stew's patio and he had absolutely wrecked the pain like instantly shattered my dreams but thankfully not my spine McCoolin, he was no different except his heroes were those of the Imin maha the warriors of ulster the red branch knights and guess what they had a boy trip that you could join kind of like the scouts but with a little more training to kill so it edges a wee bit closer to hitler youth and one day he told his ma that that's where he wanted to go she was like, uh, no, I mean, you're five. But, as will become evident, throughout the rest of these tales, Koo only really listens to Koo. So he crossed the hills of Sleafield on his own and landed in Maha, a journey of about 50-odd kilometres on foot. 
I mean, that's crazy considering I won't even let my seven-year-old go down a different island Tesco's. But, I mean, perhaps pedos hadn't been invented back then. Who knows? Also, you may remember if you listened last week and have the context and all that, that Koo's not from Ulster. He's from Meath, which is very important later. But as he arrives in Emin Maha, it's like all his dreams come true. He's lived this kind of insular life with only really family and some animals to muck about with, but he sees a bunch of kids playing Hurley and he almost shits with excitement. He charges under the pitch, grabs a ball off some unsuspecting wee kid, does some keepy-ups, and then welts the ball in the top corner, pulls his wee shitty little tunic up over his head, screaming and bombs off towards a corner flag, sliding on his knees in absolute ecstasy. Couldn't have gone better. Right? Wrong. The other boys are furious. It's probably how the kids of, like, the Craigie Estate felt when, like, a young George Best kind of joined in their games and made them all realise what a true footballer was, you know what I mean? And legend has it that young Georgie boy used to get beaten on and off the pitch just because. And the same sentiment and contempt was held by the boys that Koo had just disturbed. Follow who's like a proper princess. Well, he's the son of the king. That's how it works. And because of that, he might actually be Koo's cousin or possibly uncle. Well, he was most irritated. Why? Was it just jealousy? Or what's the crack? What's more formal than that? It's about protocol and these guys live and die by it. And the protocol was that you asked for protection before you played. It's to show respect. Koo. Well he was a bit of a culty wasn't he? And he didn't really know or I suspect didn't really care. But in what seems like a mild case of, well, overreactionism. The punishment for such a crime, it was only death, wasn't it? There was no yellow or red cards, there was no simbin. There was just a lot of angry youths throwing sledders and spears and sneaky digs at him in a rage at this kind of broken etiquette. But Koo wasn't so easily beaten. He repelled the missiles and the missives and suffered no hurt nor harm. But then it happened. The uncontrollable Koo started to contort. The quote, his hair stood out straight like nails, one eye narrowed tight, the other opening chasm wide, his jaw dislocating till you could see his gullet, and a halo appeared above his head. It was a mini Rearstarta, which is easy to say, isn't it? Or warp spasms, maybe a bit better. Koo is a shapeshifter, you see, and he can mutate into something manic and massive. It's like similar to the Hulk. Or, or maybe Eric after he's eaten a banana. And it worked as he proceeded to kick the tripe out of most of the kids. Some tried to scarper, but Koo was hot on their heels, chasing them all the way to the king's palace. They charged into the main hall and sought refuge at Conscious Knee, disrupting a game of chess between him and Fergus. And yes, it's that Fergus from part one, pre-exile. Conch grabbed Koo by the scruff and demanded to know what the heck was going on. He didn't know the boy. And Cahoolan, ever the stoic champion, Squeals the heap, given off about being set upon by the boys who did not grant him guest honour. Conch asks him who he is, wondering why he's not familiar with the local customs. Koo tells him, uh, name's Tanda. You know, your nephew, for fuck's sake. Conch probably just wants to finish his game, so he tells Koo to apologise, the rest of the kids to get out, and just a wise up. Koo follows Conch's instructions, and the boys... To be fair to them, they're dead on. They graciously accept them back into their game. Despite, well, most of them probably being in the infirmary. Some of the boys were probably still a little annoyed that Koo had gotten off so lightly. But others were probably quite impressed by his skill. As he'd done things with that ball that they couldn't. 
and they, they were the cream of Ulster's crop. But as soon as the game restarted, Koo's fists started flying. Conch heard tears and the screams come from the pitch, and he ran over and demanded to know what the hell Koo was up to. And Koo just looked him up and down and informed him that yeah, he had asked for their protection, but now he wants each and every one of them to ask for his. Conch laughs, pats him in the head and leaves the kids to the mercy of, well, this apparent psycho. But each boy, of course, quickly begs for Koo's protection. And this, in a way, is a bit of foreshadowing for how he will protect the whole of Ulster in the future. So if you take it back a second, you may have noticed that Conch didn't know who Koo was. And maybe you don't even know who Conch is. Firstly, yes... Maybe because Koo introduced himself as Saitunda. And no, he's not thinking about Saitunda was his birth name. And Kahulan is a name he later earns. Also, Konsh is Konshimer, King of Ulster and head of the Red Branch Knights, or RBK, who are an elite fighting force. And Koo is possibly Konsh's nephew, or maybe his son, depending on which tale you believe. Intrigued? Yeah, so was I. So, let's have a bit of a look here at Koo's birth story. About uh, six or seven years previous, uh, Conch was out chasing some wild birds, which, knowing him, is definitely an intended euphemism. Now, the birds, to be fair, they'd be messing up his estate, eating all the corn, shitting everywhere. So he grabbed the RPK and also a girl called Dekna and went after them. That's, I mean, what else do you do? They got as far as Bruno Boyne, which knew Grange, and were stranded by a snowstorm. Uh, this the kind of brave warriors all had a chin wag and decided to send poor Dactina to the door of the local farmer to ask if they could crash for the night. It's just the old trick, you know, of the girl and the daisy jokes hitchhiking when the trig man stops to help the damsel, all the guys emerge from behind the bush and pile into the car. The usual stuff. However, where it is slightly more unusual is that in some stories Dactina is conscious daughter and charioteer, and in others it's his sister. I'm going with sister. Though neither is good. I mean, we'll accept that. Yet neither would surprise you. What does surprise Conch, however, is when everyone wakes up in the morning, the house owner is gone, and in his stead is a baby, whom Dectina then adopts. And uh, yeah, there's also two twin foals with the take home, because, like, why not? Whenever they get back to Emin Mahathakord, speculation abounds that Dectina returning with his child, like, who's the father? And Conch, as a renowned hound, others are going, it's him. Others say it's a godly child, son of uh, Lou, who was a god of Tutanan, and that the birds have been his fairies, luring Dectina to him. It's almost moot, though, as the child dies not long after arriving in Emin Maha. But fear not, as Dectina, uh, she falls pregnant herself at the same time. And once more, the gossip mill, it rumbles. And one tale suggests that it's again Lou, who flew into your drink, disguised as well a fly and then appears in a dream and tells her that it was his house they went to before and that he's made her pregnant in a kind of Jesus-esque kind of vibe another option is that she was raped by Conch possibly just because he liked raping as it wouldn't be his first as we later uncover another is that Dectina somehow lived with Lou for a bit and one day was the lovely couple were out for a stroll they met Conch Conch didn't recognize him or her and said Hey, I haven't slept with your wife yet, 
bring her to me. And Lou, just for the crack, did as he asked and can't slept with his sister slash daughter. Anyway, making baby number two. However, that beautiful tale doesn't end there as Conch is in the process of selling Dectina to a man from Meath called Saltine. They're not wanting to take another man's unborn baby into her new relationship. She feels her only option is to self-abort. And now, I mean, I never thought I would say this, but it's here that a back-alley abortion doesn't sound quite as harrowing as it normally would. Dectony, see, she beats her belly black and blue with a bedpost until the baby stops moving. And the fact that she would do that makes me more inclined to believe the rape story. Yet, it doesn't end there, as Koo is eventually born from Saltim Seed. Maybe. Because it's also been said that Conch might be creeping around again. There's also rumours of Lou having had another go himself. But whatever way, in this convoluted relationship, it leads to Koo eventually being born. Unsure as to who his dad is, but eventually being born in Meath. And not in Ulster. Which I tell you what, that was a big surprise to me. Anyway, he was raised on a farm by Saltim and Dechna, but as you would expect, he was no ordinary child. So which we should maybe give a bit of a description at this point as well, obviously with this being like an audio medium. And as you'd expect, he's not normal looking either. Not in today's wildly fluctuating definitions of normal, and not even in his own times. He is twice the size and three times the strength of kids in his own age. Hair-wise, it's all strange colours with blonde and red and black streaks all mixed in at different points, but it differs depending on who is commenting on him at the time. And he also has seven pupils per eye and seven fingers and seven toes on each hand and foot. He's probably the kind of guy you would have seen in a circus in the not-too-distant past. I mean, basically was just this big freaky-looking unit with wild hair and certain mutations. He's not the kind of guy you're going to forget you saw. Now, if you have kids, I hope it's not just me, but I hope everyone has real trouble getting those little shits out of bed in the morning, especially as they approach their kind of teenage years, and even more so in this current pandemic. They moan, yeah, pretty much just ignore you until you bound up the stairs with this every threat going and going to tear off their blanket and throw water on them, and they bleed about, oh, life is so unfair, and how you're a horrible parent by which you launch in the end. No one will ever do for as much for you as I do, rant. Or something like that. Well, at least that's my experiences. And I think, to be fair, I was a bit like my kids too and didn't really want to get out of bed. And I kind of would maybe have got annoyed about that before. But then I sort of just am happy my kid is not like who. I say this as one story tells of a servant that had the sheer audacity, well, the nerve to try and wake him up early and get a fist through the forehead for the trouble, like literally through the forehead, killed him stone dead, no diggity. Needless to say, no one tried to wake him again, but this highlights a recurring point that Koo never seems accountable for his actions. He doesn't get into any trouble for killing this human alarm clock, or later, uh, during a game of Hurley, when another fist fight breaks out and he kills just the odd one or two or fifty kids. Uh, even Heath had felt he'd crossed the line that time as he runs and hides on her conscious couch. Now, I know what you're thinking, you know, it's a couch, how do you hide under that, especially if you're a big free unit? Well, it's not a normal couch, it's a king's couch, and I could comfortably see 30 warriors in full armour, but whenever they actually located him under there, he, like, lifted the whole couch from the ground and used it like a lion tamer's whip to keep those warriors at bay. Conch, he's got a weird way with things, like, but... He's good at what he does and he defused the situation by declaring a feast. And at that feast he claimed that Koo 
was now his son. And it sort of strikes me a little as like the Emperor claiming Anakin. And you may wonder why. Why is he adopting this complete mentalist and letting him get away with well, murder? It's because Conch can see he was special. He could see that it was better to be on his side than against him. And it was better to try and harness him as a weapon to do his bidding. Just as an aside, if you're wondering about the families of the boys, if they kicked off at the murders, launched lawsuits and all that, just remember it was early Ireland. People got killed for interrupting the game of Hurley. So would you complain? Didn't think so. I mean, in Concha's mind, Koo probably just saved poor old you mouth to feed. So in an odd way, you should be thanking him. So there, I mean, Concha is now Koo's legal parent, so he's not going to do anything against him. He's certainly not going to discipline him. He doesn't even want to parent him. What he does is he gets a crack squad together to give formal guidance, to educate Koo and to rein in his, shall we say, more radical tendencies. The team consisted of five of Ulster's best. There was Sencha, who was like a warrior poet who taught him prose and language. Blaubrigru, who was a rich man, pretty much paid for everything, didn't really do much else. Fergus was a champion who obviously taught him how to protect Ulster and its people. Emmergan, he taught him justice, which obviously didn't do a very good job. And Cathba, he taught him druidism. And Conch just sort of popped in and out and said hello when he could be arsed. I mean, it's quite the dream team. It's like a, it really is like a who's who of Ulster society. And Koo would later quip that he had been raised by the whole of Ulster. And it was much to his benefit as he developed some truly awesome skills, which he describes in his own words as beauty, judgment, horsemanship, valour, counsel, eloquence, knowledge of secret languages, and being invincible but not invulnerable. I mean, that's quite the impressive list. It is a little lacking in humility and possibly morality, but impressive nonetheless. So there's Koo, living it up like Lord Muck at uh, Castle Conch, you know. Just hanging out while Conch does all the kinging of the kingdom. It makes you wonder, what exactly does a king do? Well, it seems that it's not all raping, eating and drinking. Provinces of Ireland aren't exactly on matey terms. They only really get along with one another whenever something can be gained from it. Ireland just isn't united by anything but land. Or, well, greed. Greed too, yeah. Which is good for the Ulstermen, as they love to scrap and steal. And as everyone on the island seems of a similar ilk, there's rarely a shortage of, of like dancing partners. And during one such battle, the proud Ulstermen ride out to vanquish the men of Yogan McDerda. But... They get well and truly walloped. The battle, the battle screams of pain are so loud that they awaken Koo, who despite being miles away, seems to have the ears of a hawk. And in a split second, he's up and running, ready to join the fight. On his way there, he meets an odd man, odd as he only has half a head, and is carrying half another man on his back. Now the odd man asks Koo for help, but as most people do, is you go, uh, no, you're alright there, mate. The old man kind of takes exception to this. And what else is there for him to do but throw the half-corpse he was carrying directly at Koo, which kind of makes you wonder how much help he really needed. But Koo scoops it back up and slings it at him again, which leads to a little bit of a wrestle, but Koo getting surprisingly overwhelmed. Some half-headed deadite was kind of schooling him, but like the sweet sting of smelling salts under a nostril, he is roused by the sound of the bave. Which isn't a warm bubbly soaking tub, but one third of the Moregan, 
the battle goddess. This spooks Ku enough that he leaps up from the ground and takes the man's head from his shoulders with his hurdy stick. He then points to the heavens and punts the severed skull down range like he was Bay Bloody Ruth. Uh, reinvigorated as we all are by decapitation of course, he sets off once more, where he finds his king inexplicably buried right up to his bake in mud and absolutely no one is able to pull him out. So the stage is set for coup and he goes into full showman mode, urging a bit of hush, sets his feet, clasps his hands, salutes the crowd and hauls conch out of the mud like King Arthur drawn Excalibur from the rock. The crowd gob and whistle. Koo poses for selfies and interviews before Conch whispers something in his ear. It's not a thanks. In a moment of sheer privilege, he demands he is fed some hog. So Koo danders off into the nearby woods and just so happens to find a man whipping up some pork on one of those cheap portable barbecue things. Without even asking, Koo snatches the searing pig. And when the cook had the audacity to object, Koo also liberates his head from his shoulders. He then returns to Conch, delivers the stolen meat, saves Crucid, who is another of Conch's sons, from some awful yet untold fate, and carries both men home on his back in time for breakfast. Merely a few weeks later, Koo distinguishes himself once again. We are told that swarthy men from the Isles of Fascia launched an assault on Emin Maha, just as the Ulstermen dropped into their pangs. Which we'll explain soon enough, but for now just remember they cannot fight. The women of the estate see these men and scream and panic as they are fully aware of the fate of most women folk when raiders arrive. They look to the only warriors left standing. The boy troop. But they all ran off Gurnham when they saw the dark-skinned warriors flooding over the walls, armed to the teeth with knives and blades and all manner of pointy things. All the boyhood troop, that is... Except you know who. He's rumoured by me to have rasped, not today, not any day, before slinging so many stones at the invaders that he knocked nine down dead and drove the rest back into the sea, taking a mere yet nicely round-numbered 50 wounds to his own body. Hell of a guy. And remember at this stage, Ku is still only five years old. Yeah, five and as Fergus points out, his actions taken so far to delay the Irish invasion start to seem just a little more plausible, considering he's an almost elderly 17 years of age. <laughs> Next up to boost Coup's reputation with, uh, with the Jack and Ari story is Cormac Conlongus, yet another of Concha's own sons. He chirps in with, with what is probably the most famous of all the youthful tales of Coup that concerning a vicious hound. It occurred the following year, so Koo would have been around six years old. The story starts when a blacksmith called Hulan decided it would be good for his career to invite the king and a few highfalutin pals over to his for some chip and dip. His wife made a promise that it would be a quiet gathering, a small token of appreciation, and she ensured that this was made crystal clear in big block letters on the invite. But conch being conch, paid no heed whatsoever to her words. Well, he was there sitting, snapchatting himself, getting his hair done, acting the begging, picking out his best gown, taking the shots, and before you knew it, half the palace had invited themselves and the party had swollen from five to fifty. Taxis were booked, carried out in a brown bag, they were set, but for one thing, conscious custom. He had a tradition whereby, before he headed off on a bender, 
he liked to bless the boy troop. Not in a shady way, as far as we know. But this time, as he approached where the boys were playing, he clocked something interesting. It seemed that the, the teams were a little uh, unbalanced. 50 to 1. One boy defending the net against 50 attackers and not conceding a single goal. Then counter-attacking and scoring 50 himself unanswered. Yeah, the logistics of that are a little bit dubious, but sure, park it. Just like Koo parked his ass because he had a few beers to finish and he decided he would watch the rest of the games. And next up was wrestling and the prodigious boy talent bested everyone without losing a single thread of clothes nor being put to the ground once. But just who was this boy? It's not exactly a cliffhanger, is it? But Conch is so impressed by his performance that he invites him to join the royal party at Hulens for dinner. Obviously, it's cool, and he says, Aye, alright, but informs Conch that he has a game of hurdy to finish first, and we'll meet him there. Uh, you don't really know the way, replied Conch. Uh, I'll follow the tracks, mate, replied Koo. Now jog on. I paraphrased that slightly there, but the sentiment is the same. And I'm sure people have probably lost their heads for much less. But again, Golden Boy gets away with his cheek, showing again how his treatment differs to others. As, well, Conch, he just laughs, slaps his charioteer in the arse, and tells him to make haste for the party. Next event was wrestling, and the prodigious boy talent, well, next up was wrestling, and the prodigious boy talent bested everyone, without losing a single thread of clothes nor being put to the ground once, but just who was this boy? It's not exactly a cliffhanger, is it? Hulan only lived a few valleys away, and despite his wife's express orders, he has pulled out all the stops. Strippers, shots, speakers on the roof, subwoofer, shaking the leaf from the trees, and Conch loves it, getting right in amongst it. Hulan, yeah, he's a little shocked at the size of the posse that uh, came knocking at his door. He sarcastically asks the king if he's expecting anyone else, and Conch waves him away with an eye, whatever, mate, distracted by the drink and the dancers that await inside, and crucially forgetting that he had invited Koo. Once everyone was inside, Hulan points out the window to show Conch his huge bloodhound. It is the sole source of security for the estate and does it better than any man or magic might. So fierce and strong was the base that it takes three men to hold each of the three thick metal chains that contain him. No one would be so foolish as to approach the estate while this wild, untamable, furious, savage, ferocious beast was on guard. Would they? says Hulan. The two men laugh, high five, and Koo heads off, looking for some wild birds. Meanwhile, our young hero has finally finished beating up kids twice his age, but half his size, and easily traces the tracks to Hulan's house. The sky has turned from purple to black, and the shapes of nature are only really illuminated by the mild moonlight. Koo prizes open the creaky gate and enters Hulan's garden before sauntering up the path. He's feeling cocky, he's whistling, he's about to go partying with the king and his cohort, but then... His spidey sense goes full spasm. A dark presence rapidly, rapidly approaches. He can feel the quake in the crowd, can taste the danger in the earth, smell of blood on breath. And instinctively, he shifts into warrior mode, armed only with a slitter, which is an old Irish hurdy ball. He senses Boko movement ahead. 
Then he hears the piercing howl, sees bared teeth glint in the moonlight, saliva swinging from huge incisors anticipating a fresh meal. But the hound didn't bank and meet and coo that night. Without a hint of fear, Koo tosses the ball up in the air, catches it, grins at the beast and then pitches the ball that La Flama Blanca would have been proud of. The slitter entered the gaping mouth of the hound, poured right through his internal organs and pops out the beast back door with guts attached. I mean, it, it actually says that in the text. Most people would take this chance to run, to escape from the weakened animal, but not Koo. He wasn't finished and goes full Mortal Kombat mode. He lifted the hound by his front paws and dashed his body from the pillar post until all his limbs went limp and his body burst wide open. Already heavily damaged organs, splattering, shattering across the ground. The drunken revellers inside had frozen when they heard the inhuman howl. In that instant, Conch remembered Koo's invite. Convinced that he must have perished at the paws of the perilous pup, the men all rushed outside only to find young Koo chilling against the wall like Swayze in Roadhouse. At his feet was the hound in pieces like torn up patch quilt. All the Ulstermen were ecstatic to see him alive. Well, except for maybe Hulan. Not that he had anything against the boy, but his dog was lying in bits and pieces. His pet, the tender of his herds and flocks and stock, the protector of all his cattle, was gone. Koo understood the man's dismay and declared that he would raise a whelp to be just as ferocious, and until that day he himself would guard Hulan's property. Kathba, the druid, with a backstory I'm sure we'll touch on very soon, declared that from that day forth Saitanda would be known as the Hound of Hulan, or Ku Hulan. At first he didn't want to change his name, but Kathba told him that the name Ku would give him more infamy. And all of a sudden... Yeah, Koo was happy to change. Later, he became commonly known as the Hound of Oster, even if his name remained Koo Hulan. Now, some believe this origin story to be a bit of oil bags. And weirdly, not because of the dubious prospect of, well, a six-year-old kid defeating a giant killing monster machine, but because they say his name is not based on the Hound, but on chariots as Koo is also taken the main chariot. They say that Koo was taken on by Hulan, not as a guardian, but as a blacksmith's apprentice, and his skills in this area are well regarded as we see in snippets throughout the story. He may have gone on to become Hulan's charioteer or warrior of the smith. You may scoff, and believe you may I have, even though I do have a real nose for contrarian beliefs, but there's more. They also say that he's half English, that his mum was actually a princess of a tribe there, the Brigante, who ruled much of northern England and maybe even parts of Scotland at the time. To be more specific, she was from Portus Citantorium, or seaport of the Citanti tribe. The who now? Yeah, the Citantis. They love to sail about, destroy stuff, colonise lands and tell tales. Sound familiar? Now, the Roman dude, uh, Ptolemy, well, his early BC map has him in Fleetwood, just east of the Isle of Man, which sits between Ireland and England, and Koo later travels there. Sitanda is apparently meaning of the Sitanti tribe. So is that more than a coincidence? Also, it's debated that he has an English-slash-Welsh name as well, that of Gawain, who was King Arthur's nephew-slash-son, and believed that his word was everything, the word of a knight, the honour, 
just like Q and his Gesh, which we come to later. And this is one of the many links to English Welsh literature, like Ferg's sword, like the Moregan, like Cathbaugh's Merlin. It's a cross-pollination of tales. We'll maybe touch on those later as well, but just remember how closely linked these stories are to each other and keep an open mind as to their origin. Next, it's Fuck You, one of Ferg's sons, and he elbows his way to the front as he too has a coup story to tell, this time from when he was seven. He tells of Coo just out playing with his dolls in the woods one day when he overhears Cathba, the druid, prophesying that the child that took up arms that very day would be famous and have a glorious life with his stories told for eternity. But at the price of a vastly shortened lifespan, Coo immediately runs the couch, not giving a shit about the lifespan, and pleads to be given arms. Conscious why? And he told him the truth, in a sense. He told him that Cathbad had prophesied it for him, so the king was all chuffed that out golden bulls had been recognised and handed him a My First Killing Kit. The kind of thing that keeps kids happy but safe. Yet within minutes, Coo was back right up in his grill. Kind of broke them, mate, he said. Smashed them to pieces, as he did with the replacement set that followed, and the next one, and the next one, and so on. Fourteen sets he went through, breaking them all, until the king ended up handing over his own personal weapons. That's quite a thing for the king to do. They are his personal weapons that he's fought with for years. So why would he do that? Well, you have to remember that he sees something special in Ku. Again, not dissimilar to how the emperor saw a young Anakin Skywalker. A few days later, Ku was earwigging again and overheard yet another of Kafa's prophecies. This time, it was that the youth that takes up chariots that very day would have created stories told about them forever. It seems that the other prophecy wasn't enough, so... Honor hungry as always, he raced off the conch again with the same outcome, except this time he wrecked a mere 17 chariots before being given the king's wheels and the king's charioteer, a man called Eivor. And Eivor took young Koo for a spin thrice around the Yenan estate, just as we special treat. But as we have established, Koo is not your average seven-year-old, and a quick rip around the grounds was never going to be enough. So we begged Eivor to take him further afield, to the full length of the road, to Athna Ferrer, the ford of the watching, where always sat a stout warrior of Ulster, to keep watch and ward over the province, providing, well yeah, a hard border of sorts. It was Conal Carnage that day, Conal the Victorious, and he was pleased for Coo, if, well, a little shocked. Coo told him how he wanted to go to Fertus Loch Ectran a notorious hive of scum and villainy outside of Ulster's borders, in order that he could redden his hands with friend or foe. So basically just to bash someone about, anyone really. And again, and again, it's an example of Ku doing what he liked. As for Ulstermen, the traditional route was to go and kill scum in Connacht. But Ku had his heart set on raiding Leinster. Despite warning him not to go, Conal was honour-bound to go with him, even if it meant having to leave the pass unguarded. But as he was about to set off, Coo hurled a rock at his chariot and bust his wheel spokes. Connell, well, oddly he burst into tears and told Coo to piss off. And Coo, duly obliged, ordering Ivar to take him here, there and everywhere. Sounds like a bit of a joy, right? But Ivar had not become the top charioteer in Ulster for nothing. He was a sharp dude, and he took the opportunity to educate Coo about the history of the province and its fiery boundaries, ending up at the dune of the next scene. 
the Hill of the Fierce, located just over the border. They stopped on the crest of the hill and Koo noticed a pillar stone, complete with Ogham writing, but he must have thought it was giving him a dirty look as he kicked it over into the nearby river. A little petulant, you may think, but he knew the ramifications to what he was doing. That it had Ogham writing on it proved its importance to someone, and these particular someones were Foyle and Fandal and Tuggle. He was attempting to enrage these three sons of the Naxine, men who felt no love for their northern neighbours. Their father had died at the hands of the men from the north, and in return they had killed more Ulstermen than were currently alive. Whilst they awaited their impending reprisals, Ku ordered Ivar to A. make him a bed and B. guard over him whilst he slept. Because apparently riding in a chariot is uh, harder than the actual charioteering itself. But Ivar knew of Ku's temper, so when he said that he was not to be woken, unless it was a threat of imminent violence, then that was what was going to happen. And he was probably scanning the grounds to see where he could get a pole to prod him awake from afar. But he needn't have worried, as the footsteps of Foyle were not long in coming. Foyle had been a little, a little paved, so to speak, by the sight of his family's pillar stone floating past him in the river, and he came looking for the reason why. Kuya woke to hear Foyle slagging him off for being such a young pup, claiming that he should be at home playing with Lego. Eivor was trying to pacify the man's anger, claiming Kuya meant no harm, but we all know Kuya, and he did mean harm, and he roused up himself reddened. With rage, Eivor wanted to avoid confrontation as he knew these sons of the next scene were not normal. They possessed strange powers. Foyle's power was that he could not be harmed by point nor edge. Now Eivor sees this as a reason not to fight, but Ku sees it as a challenge. And after a few shoulder stretches and a couple of lunges, he catches Foyle unaware and unleashes an apple-sized metal ball from his hand like a howitzer and succeeds in creating an apple-sized hole in Foyle's head, a head which he duly lops off with his usual candour to complete the kill. Next up is Tuckle, the cunning, who Eivor said must be killed with one blow or pay the price. So quick as a Dornish viper, Koo hits him with conscious venomous lance, the Christ name. It sticks deep in his heart and with the shaft still wangling, and no doubt with all Tuckle still in a, a bit of shock, you would say, Koo separates his head from his body too. The third wheel of the trio is Findel, the swallow. He's apparently the greatest swimmer in the land. So what else does he want but a wrestle in the sea? And Koo obliges after bragging that he can carry a boy over the Callan River on either of his palms and a boy on either of his shoulders without even getting his ankles wet. Well that's some going considering twice that age I cheated in my bronze swimming award. Still barely passed. Though uh, the swim coach was at Peter we told you about way back in episode one so... Kinda glad it didn't have the uh, the talents he was looking for, so to speak. Anyway, this fight is is it's the biggest anticlimax of the three. As Findle finds himself drawing a beheaded quicker than it would take me to blow up my daughter's armbands. But as if killing the three bros wasn't enough, Ku then tortures their village. It's quite the typical evil episode. As he races off, village burning in the background, children crying, men of fighting age vanquished, Mama Seen wailing at the loss of her sons, and Ku. Cackling, with the heads of Foyle, Findle and Tuggle affixed to the speeding chariot, on display for all to see. But this still isn't enough, not for Ku anyway, he wants more. Evor is desperate for a way to distract him. 
who by now he's a slavering wreck, absolutely frantic by the taste of savage death in his lips, and Eivor tells him that no Ulsterman has ever captured a live wild deer. Dead is easy, but alive too difficult for anyone. So Ku dives headfirst out of the chariot and captures not one but two alive and attaches them to the chariot beside the heads. Then he sees swans and captures them too before making for Em and Maha. It must have been some sight, with a herd of wild deer behind his chariot and the flock of angry swans flying above trying to get their brethren back and the three heads of the sons of the necked scene mixed amongst their stolen jewels, treasures and wealth. Makes you wonder how big the bloody chariot was, done it? I was thinking more Ben-Hur, but it seems to be more Friar Tuck, you know? Crazy. So, as this vehicle of death approaches home, they are seen by the duty watch, Liebergum, and she shits it. Koo looks like he's just smoked a bowl of crack in one blast, and she fears for the lives of anyone that gets in his path. Right on cue, Koo, he turns the chariot to the left, crazy bastard, and he shouts, I swear by the god of whom the Ulstermen swear, if a man cannot be found to engage with me, I will spill the blood of everyone in the dune. Now, firstly, turning left is just not done. It's like putting in the coffee grounds in the cup without adding milk first. Just ridiculous behaviour. And conscious death in milk first, man. But he's got other things in his mind, such as coups and coming rage. So he comes up with a cunning plan. A plan which epitomises both his own bravery and nice. His plan is send out the women, naked, led by Scanlick. Which means the wanton, so probably a good choice to go out naked first. I'd say you're maybe thinking a conscious wants to see some flesh. No, it's actually a smart and calculated move, as proven by the boobs and beaver display doing the trick. Ku, bashful in the face of, of such bodiness, averts his eyes and relents from his rage, enough to be dipped in three separate vats of water, each cooler than the last. When he emerges from the third vat, sufficiently chilled, he is taken and dressed by the Queen of Ulster, Mugain, the current Mrs. Conch. And it's like the classic caterpillar to butterfly metamorphosis, as he had changed and not just in temper. This episode is largely thought to represent its rapid ascent to adulthood, like he just rushed through puberty in a single day, and the crowd, who no doubt just before would have been bricking it in case he went full rampage, were now cheering for this seven-fingered felon. And under their eyes, he took his new place in the throne room. Not at Conch's right-hand side, as, as you might expect, but between Conch's feet, as the king stroked his hair, petting him, almost, just almost, like he was a hound. And maybe that's when he becomes the Hound of Ulster, rather than just Hulin's Hound. But I'm only surmising there. Though I do have one question. Well, many, but one for now. And yes, I'm sure you have loads too, and you can always hit us up on our socials if you want. But we need to park the majority of them here for obvious brevity reasons. Though, what I want to know is how he had enough time to be gallivanting all over Ulster when he was supposed to be guarding Hulin's land. I mean, you can't exactly pop down to the local pet store to get one of those monsters. And even Hulin's Hound had been found accidentally born in a human skull. But I digress with the unimportant issues. What is important is that Ku had established himself. Through his deeds he had shown many talents. But most notable was his ferocity, intelligence, guile and his indomitable way with war. Conch must have been licking his proverbial lips at the prospect of unleashing this crazy behemoth on his many enemies in the rest of Ireland. And talking about Conch, by the way, this may be a good time to interject with some tales of him and some of the other main players in this Game of Thrones. But, 
that we'll have to wait until next week. So take some more Irish music to the eardrums as we depart and remember to stay well and keep safe in these perilous times. But always be comforted in the fact that no one's trying to chop your head off. I hope. Anyway, later. sang a song to me in songs of sweet and at all just a simple little ditty in our good old Irish way and I'd give the world if she could sing that song to me this No.